You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.36, Maiden Voyage. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and if you need me, I'll be foretelling the future of MSB with this app on my phone. They listen to me. They listen to me not. They listen to me. They listen to me not. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and Tom can attest that I spent most of this episode enraged. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 460 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters Campbellized, ZR, Matthew H., and Maddie K. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 38, The Iron Wall of the Jamaru Finn, or Tepeki Jamaru Finn. This episode originally aired on November 22, 1986. It was written by Suzuki Yumiko and directed by Sekita Osamu, with storyboards by Sugishima Kunihisa. For our research this week, have you ever noticed how character profiles and even Wikipedia pages for real Japanese celebrities often include, of all things, their blood types? Nina researched the system of pop psychology that purports to predict personality using nothing but a person's blood type. But first, it's radio-free Shangri-La. The scene. A hangar on Axis. Standing outside the cargo freighter turned radio-free Shangri-La headquarters, Tim Timpson is on the phone negotiating with a local repair shop. That much for a full repair, huh? No, no, I, I get it. The ship is in bad shape. What would it cost for just engines, life support, and one antenna? Five million, Gila! Would you accept three? No, uh, three, Gila. Hello? Hello? No luck getting our little mobile broadcast studio fixed? They all want money. What if we offer to feature them in one of our radio dramas? You know, give them some free advertising? Actually, one company offered me a 20% discount if we would run ads for their competitors. That's hurtful. I think that was the idea. Hey, don't look now, but there are some soldiers coming this way. Who's that with them? Hello, Tom. Right now, I am merely Tim Timson. What brings you here, Lieutenant Nina's daughter? It's Captain, actually. And I suppose this must be your new project, the famous Radio Free Shangri-La. Half a dozen actors working out of a broken-down old freighter? <laughs> You're doing better than I expected. That's hurtful. I think that was the idea. Did she call Mr. Timson Tom? Tom Timson? Why does that name sound so familiar? Are you planning to tell me what you want? I'm just building anticipation. It's a technique used in show business. Maybe you should try it sometime. That's right. I forgot how much you always relied on cheap tricks in order to keep the audience engaged. O-M-G! I totally ship them. Rivals to lovers. Banter aside, I'm here with an offer. The NZC Corporation wants to buy Radio Free Shangri-La. You'll all get generous buyouts, and of course we want you to continue on as salaried NZC employees at the new RFS. We've even outfitted a new ship especially for your use. You're not seriously considering her offer, are you? Maybe I'd like to be able to afford to eat. 
They dropped a colony on Dublin less than a week ago. Oh yeah, like the Federation's any better. That is so totally not the point. It's not like we're talking about joining the army. We'd be doing the same thing we're doing now, just with a steady paycheck. Well, I guess everybody has a price. Well, that was uncalled for. Look, why don't we at least go check out this new ship? We don't exactly have a lot of options right now. The Nindra's main high-mega broadcast antenna is a three-fold system so that it can be controlled from the recording studio, the live streaming cabin, or the bridge. <gasps> Everything is state-of-the-art. And it doesn't smell like feet. I had heard of audio cables with gold-plated connectors, but I never thought I'd see them. Oh, those are actually pure gold. We use it for everything here. Ooh. I'll leave you all to get familiar with your new content creation cruiser. Take a walk with me, Tom. So what's the game, Nina? You don't seriously expect me to believe that you arranged all of this for us. There's something I need to show you. What? What is... Are those freezers? Are there people in them? Not people, Thompson. Artists. And once we've fired those amateurs upstairs, these will be your new cast. Are they naked? But these are no mere actors who can only reach the audience through their performances. No, these are a new type of content creator, capable of connecting to their fans in a deeper, purer way through social media. You don't mean... That's right. They're influencers. <gasps> but why are they naked? Each one has been genetically engineered for maximum engagement and imprinted with a quirky yet accessible personality matrix. I've personally trained them from birth in the three essential performance disciplines, singing, dancing, and news reporting. From, wait, from birth? Were you already working on this when we were at TNN? And now I'm ready to unleash them on the unsuspecting Earth sphere. With them, I will build a media empire the likes of which humanity has never seen. Then Lady Haman will have no choice but to recognize me. I have several questions about this plan. I'm offering you this one opportunity to join me in my meteoric rise as my faithless lieutenant. Do you mean faithful lieutenant? I do not. And just to be clear, the other members of Radio Free Shangri-La... Will all be fired immediately after they agree to the sale. You'll be the only one staying on. Then why are you even bothering with this whole song and dance? Oh, the merchandising rights for Zabibi alone are worth ten times what it will cost to buy this studio. Zabibi! BB fats off Amarillo with his human best friend Strobe. So BB, he is the space squire and he is opposable. So BB, he's a squishy little green thing or maybe an orange space dog. So BB limits your imagination when you purchase his custom mold. Only one ninety nine ninety nine before tax. So BB, so BB. And if I accept, then I can put clothes on them, right? And now the recap for The Iron Wall of the Jamru Finn. Having just visited Granada, the Lavian Rose is fully resupplied. Emery is lovesick and sulking now that Bright has gone, but Millie tries to get her to focus. They need to deliver supplies and messages to the Nail Argama as quickly as possible. Meanwhile, the Nail Argama is experiencing some growing pains. Bicha takes every opportunity to give orders and criticism and turns every disagreement into a power struggle, to the obvious frustration of the rest of the crew. 
There's no sign of the enemy nearby, and although Bija thinks they should press on for side 3, Judo thinks the enemy must be close, but hidden by the asteroid field. Besides, they need more intel about the situation around side 3. They can't go in blind. In moments, they're brandishing their fists at each other, and Taurus has to break them up before it escalates into a full-on fight. More concerning to the whole crew is what happens afterwards, when Judo says, Lena would be mad at me for fighting. He goes on to tell Bicha, We need to end the war soon so that I can see her again. Concerned looks are exchanged around the bridge, while Eno insists Judo is just overtired. Growing impatient with looking for the nail Argama, Emery orders the Levian Rose to send up a signal flare. Unfortunately, it is just as visible to their enemies as it is to their friends, and it is spotted by the Jamru 3D team, pilots Danny, Dell, and Dune, in brand new Jamru Finn mobile armors, bound for the Endra. Mistaking the Lavian Rose for the Argama, and thinking that this is their chance to arrive at their new posting covered in glory, they set a course for the dock ship. The Gundam team also saw the flare, and assuming that it means the Levian Rose is in trouble, they launched the double Zeta, Zeta, and Mega Rider. The Levian Rose is a sitting duck. Emery has to be reminded to call for battle stations. The dense field of dummy asteroids around the ship means the gunners can't get a clear shot, and the enemy mobile suits are so fast that they are sure to arrive before the Gundam team. Judo sees it too, and tells L, Fire when and where, I tell you. From here, Elle replies. But in spite of her incredulity, when Judo tells her, Now! Bringing his new type abilities to bear to sense the location of the enemy, Elle fires. The beam scatters the Jamru Finn team, landing a glancing blow that damages the mobile armor plating and destroys one mobile armor's booster. The Neo Zeon pilots decide to continue to the Endra and regroup from there. After the skirmish, Emery delivers two messages to the crew of the Nail Argama, and Bicha reads the messages aloud. The first is an official communication, informing them that their mission is to defeat Neozeon at Side 3. Failure will result in all of them being treated as rebels by Ayug and the Federation. Most of the group seems outraged, but Judo smiles and points out that fighting Neozeon at Side 3 and trying to end the war is what they had planned on doing anyway. Besides, they're being paid, and he wants to be able to send Lena to a good school when this is all over. Bicha starts to ask Judo what he's talking about, but El talks over him, playing along with Judo's comments about Lena being alive. The second message is a video from Bright, where he assures them that they are ready for what lies ahead, ready to make their own decisions and fight for themselves. Let's do it, Judo cheers, and the rest join him. But Bicha stands apart, still worried about Judo's mental state. Before launching an assault on the Argamont, the Endro receives two new groups of pilots. The first is the Jamru team. Cocky but professional, Mashima is not concerned about managing them. The other, the Sturm Diaz team, is led by Sato, an old Zeon captain from Side 3 who openly balks at being placed under Mashima's command. The Ayub ships are ready to defend, but their mobile suit pilots are badly outnumbered. With ten or more enemy mobile suits incoming, Torres tries to get Bicha to pilot the Hyakushiki, but Bicha insists that a captain has to stay on the bridge. The numbers mean that the whole Gundam team is occupied when Sato makes a beeline for the Nail Argama's bridge. Emery orders her own gunners to fire, but Sato's in one of their blind spots. They can't target him. He's about to punch through the bridge when Ilya shoots him down, obliterating his mobile suit with him inside it. Then, she tries to use his death to inspire his squad, crying out, They've killed Sato! Avenge your captain! The Jamru 3D squad gang up on the double Zeta, and Judo is struggling. Finally, Emery hails the Nail Argama and tells Bicha he needs to defend his ship, the crew will never respect him as a captain if he isn't willing to fight for them, and she can manage the nail Argama's bridge in the meantime. Once Bicha joins the battle, he and Judo start arguing and sniping at each other, even as they fight back to back. Fed up, Bicha declares that he can fight the Jamru team on his own, but Lena appears to Bicha, telling him, 
no, you can't. In the same moment that one of the Jamru shoots off the Hyakushiki's foot. She also appears to Judo, telling him to calm down. Once he does, he is able to use his new type abilities again, directing not only his shots but also Bicha's, and they drive off the Jamu squad. Ilya calls a retreat for the demoralized Sturm Diaz team and returns to the Endra. In the aftermath, Bicha tells Judo that he saw and heard Lena, and Judo is happy and relieved. He wasn't sensing a ghost or spirit. Lena really is alive. I never like saying this, but I think they bungled this episode. Hard for me to argue since I spent most of the episode enraged by their characterization of Emery here and so got very little out of the other parts <laughs> of the episode, even parts of it that I think were interesting ideas or had more potential. I do think there are a lot of parts of this episode that did have potential, but beyond the Emery thing, from the beginning, the point of this episode and where it fits in the overall structure of the story, uh, it feels like it comes too soon. Like, we only just last episode saw the crew leave the Levian Rose, ready to go off and have their own adventures, and now, one week later, it's like, oh no, we need to rendezvous with the Levian Rose again, bring all those characters back in, move away from that sense of independence, and, you know, do this storyline about getting supplies, which I think would have worked better if there had been more intervening episodes. You know, give the crew of the Nail Argama a chance, one or two episodes, to do stuff and encounter their own problems and come up with their own solutions. Ah, but then they probably would have resolved their sort of internal power struggles before they ever got to this fight, and they couldn't have that climactic moment of Lena telling Beecha to give it over himself. <laughs> well, but maybe they could have had that without the Livian Rose uh, part of the storyline. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned the timing of everything. Judo's apparent break with reality this episode, at least it appears that way to the people around him, would have been so much more interesting as a plot point if we as the audience didn't know Lena was alive. I was going to bring that up too. Couldn't they have just revealed that at the end of this episode? Or left it nebulous and revealed it in some future episode. Maybe leave us at the end of this episode thinking, Judo is kind of cracking up. And there are times in this episode when it seems like that's what they want us to do. Because you look at Judo's face when oh. he's talking about Lena being alive, and he looks like he's losing it a little bit. He's a, he's a caricature, right? The extra wide eyes, the extra wide toothy smile. He looks ill. The first time it comes up, he says, oh, we shouldn't fight. Lena would yell at me. And it's kind of ambiguous because it's not necessarily inconsistent with the idea that, uh, you know, our, our dead loved ones are watching us from the beyond, right? But then he says, we need to end the war so I can see her again. And if I didn't know she was alive, my first thought would have been, is he thinking of killing himself when the war <laughs> is over? Ugh, yeah. Um, but he also has that bit about wanting to send her to a good school, so he needs to get money. But that's much later in the episode. Mm -hmm. But yes, it makes clear he believes that she physically exists somewhere. And if he's not certain, though, if he has this feeling, but his logical mind is telling him it can't be true, that would explain why he hasn't tried to tell anyone. Until now, when he tells people repeatedly throughout the whole episode. Right, the fact that he never explains to them, it... It would work if the point was that he's losing it. Right. And the way everybody reacts to him also feels like part of this. And I'm going to put this in my column of things that this episode does well. I really like the way they have the other kids react to these things Judo is saying, where Bicha, who, you know... Throughout this episode, they make a big point of the rivalry between Bicha and Judo, the conflict between the two of them. But also, we can see that Bicha really cares about Judo, his friend, and is worried about him. Because Bicha is the one who's like, I don't think Judo is okay. We should, we need to address this. And everybody else is just like, no, just, he's fine right now. Let it ride. 
don't say anything to upset him. Yeah, Judo, sure, we all can't wait to see Lena again. Lena, who's definitely alive. You're doing great, buddy. And it's curious that he takes Bicha having seen her as confirmation that she's really there. And not that she's a ghost right well like yeah i don't i don't really get why he believes that <laughs> that she wouldn't contact bicho or bicho wouldn't be receptive to her if she weren't like a living person exercising new type power i it, i mean new type stuff often makes no sense but <laughs> speaking of new type stuff that makes no sense when she contacts bicho and judo why do they still see her in her party dress from dakar that was the last thing they saw her wearing that's true, but that does say something interesting about the new type perception being located within the like consciousness of the person receiving it mm -hmm. and not really a direct message beamed in from the person sending it. And thinking about these scenes, this sort of storyline within the episode brought me back to you know, what was the purpose of Lena's death and what was the purpose of bringing her back and this episode makes it seem that the whole purpose was just to give us some drama around Judo's mental state and maybe to demonstrate what a good new type he is. Or maybe to force him to grow into these powers. But it feels like another example of a kind of careless use of women and girls' deaths, women and, mm -hmm. women and girls' mm -hmm. life, uh, to demonstrate character growth on the part of male characters. Seeing the way she is used in this episode, now that they've brought her back, does make me think that maybe you were right last episode when you said that with Puru's death, there's like a, a narrative hole. They need a character who does that role. And so they've brought Lena back to fill it because what does she do here? She becomes a kind of new type battle coordinator for them. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Puru did and that briefly Camille did, but he's back on Earth. Well, so is she, though. Hmm. it's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe at some point this was supposed to be the episode in which Lena still being alive was first revealed. Maybe that cameo in the prior episode was a later insertion. Maybe. Another area where a little bit more time between the prior episode and this one would make this episode work better is when we start on the La Vienne Rose and uh, Bright is leaving to go presumably take up a position with the AU general staff where he'll be able to use his influence to keep supplies headed for the Argama. And we are sort of left to fill in some gaps about what the relationship between Bright and Emery has been like since he stayed behind on the Livian Rose when the Nail Argama sailed away. And it would be easier to do that if they had given us more time and more space. It's kind of the opposite of the problem that Zeta had, where a character would disappear for 10 episodes. Here, maybe they should be allowed to stay away a little bit longer. My impression in the one scene that they have together is that their relationship continues much the way as it always has, Bright is somewhat embarrassed by the attention, but is not doing anything to directly discourage it. And Emery is infatuated. And maybe this is where I get into my, my <laughs> Do you long... have a rant? Oh, I have a rant. I have such a rant. Um, my main issue here being that as I remember the series, Emery has previously been depicted as a competent woman in a position of authority and good at what she does. Uh, who is made completely ridiculous. I would say they spend most of the episode making her look incompetent because of this infatuation. Earlier, you likened the depiction of Judo to a caricature. Emery, similarly here, is presented not as an infatuated woman, but as a caricature of an infatuated love-struck young woman. Honestly, she strikes me like a love-struck teenager. Oh yeah, the characterization is very young, weak, irresponsible, bad at her job. Uh, the playing with the little uh, fortune-telling calculator and the other sort of fortune-telling games that she plays reminded me of nothing so much as things like uh, in the United States, probably like late elementary school through middle school, a lot of kids play pen and paper fortune-telling games. Um, MASH is one example that maybe some of you remember. Cootie Catchers are another. I don't know if kids still do either of those. <laughs> 
she's doing the he loves me, he loves me not thing, but instead of picking petals off of a flower, she's got an app that does it. You know, she gets a deer in the headlights look when confronted with her job. And she's impatient and she's naive and inexperienced and she makes bad decisions in combat. And marriage obsessed. We have Millie as a counterpoint here, but what is, what is the message here? Is there one? <laughs> is she one horrifically infatuated woman? Or are we meant to understand that women have to be single or sexless or asexual or aromantic in order to do quote unquote serious work? You know, is this meant to be flattering? Is this meant to be a kind of male fantasy? A beautiful young woman so obsessed with you, she can't do anything <laughs> but think about you. I'm inclined to expand my lens a little bit beyond Emery and look at it as it plays into the whole episode, because this is an episode about bad captains and bad captaincy. Because Emery is paralleled over on the nail Argama by Beecha, because Beecha, despite a very promising showing in the prior episode, has now fallen into the trap that a lot of new people in leadership positions do, uh, where he's trying to throw his weight around and assert his authority. And he's, you know, he's doing what he has seen other captains do, what he imagines captains are supposed to do. Uh, and then over on the Endra 2, which is the ship that Mashima is commanding, we have Mashima, who is depicted as perhaps a, a better commander, although there are some question marks on that, especially given his scene at the end of the episode when he is laughing maniacally, which strongly suggests that Mashima may not be all there. This is contrasted in a subtle way with Sato, the commander of the Diaz team, who we realize is well-respected by all of his troops, and when he dies, their morale completely disintegrates. So Emery is a bad captain, and her bad captaincy is depicted in a very, very gendered way. But she's not the only bad captain in the show. Right, but we have an experienced and previously well-depicted adult woman being compared to a teenage boy with no experience. And I'm not convinced that Mashima is meant to seem like a bad captain here. So basically, it's real sexist and... I spent the episode angry about it in a way that definitely distracted from other parts of the episode. That's fair. Well, and then when she finally does something good, when she finally does something right, the minute it's over, she's like, oh, it's because I was thinking of right. I was being just like this man that I'm in love with, and that's what enabled me to be good at my job. <sighs> yes. I mean, she's literally ridiculous. She is held up as an object of ridicule throughout this episode. For what it's worth, this episode was written by the one woman writer on staff. Take from that what you will. Certainly it doesn't change anything about the episode, but it is worth keeping in mind. <laughs> that just makes me wonder to what degree Millie is a self-insert for that writer. And her characterization of Emery is a, a characterized and extreme depiction of a kind of woman she saw in the workplace. And it is a, a stereotype, I don't know how true it was, uh, but of women who entered the workforce to find husbands. Like, the point was to meet an executive at the company you worked at or some man with good career prospects and potential and get married and stop working. That was, you know, the real reason to be there, not the job itself. Uh, and there absolutely was on-site matchmaking happening at Japanese companies, uh, that is a historical fact. <laughs> I don't know how common it was. And while I'm sure there were some very marriage-focused women in those circumstances, this particular depiction still uh, grates, <laughs> shall we say. Sure. And while the depiction is very grating, and I don't want to torment Nina by lingering on it excessively, they actually do a couple of neat things that I want to highlight. When she's doing the fortune tester machine... When she's sitting on the bridge and doing it, she has a array of five playing cards. Four of them are static on one side, and then there's a fifth one that's like it's switching back and forth between two different cards. And the two cards it's switching between are the Ace of Hearts and the Queen of Spades. I did a little bit of poking at 
cartomancy, the art of doing fortune telling with playing cards. And while I can't guarantee that any of these interpretations that I found are universal or were current in the 1980s or were popular in Japan in the 1980s, it did seem to be consistently held that the Ace of Hearts refers to romantic relationships, quite naturally, and that the Queen of Spades can indicate a uh, dark-haired, powerful, strong-willed woman. So this could be the fortune-telling machine alternating like romance that Emery wants versus dark-haired, strong-willed Mirai. And then later, when Sato is approaching the bridge of the Argama and Emery gives orders to shoot him down, but the officer on the bridge of the La Vienne Rose says he's in our blind spot, she says something like, oh no, and the fortune teller drifts across the screen in front of her face, and there is only one card on it at that point, and it is the Joker. So I did notice the device drifting across her face (laughs) through the bridge. I did not notice the card on it. However, it did seem to precede the moment when she kind of pulls herself together enough to tell Beecha what he needs to hear to do what he needs to do. And so visually, it felt like, you know, releasing this obsession, if only Mm -hmm. momentarily, in order to refocus (laughs) on the job at hand. Ah, I interpreted it almost exactly the opposite way. I thought it was a demonstration that this love tester and what it represents were her blind spot. One final thing that I noticed from Emery is in that moment where she is describing her connection to Bright, she uses what's called a yoji jukugo, which is a four-character compound. And these are often sayings, aphorisms. And it's ishin dotai, which uh, jisho.org defines as being one in body and soul of one flesh, two hearts beating as one, which, no, you're not. You need to cool off, Emery. But that's similar to the way Mirai always described their relationship in Zeta when she was talking about being separated and yet still knowing intimately what Bright was thinking and feeling and what he would want. And needing to sort of represent him to the kids and... To be two hearts in one flesh. Earlier, I took some issue with your characterization of Mashima as a bad captain. Mainly because I feel like the Mashima storyline is meant to illustrate some different things. And incompetence isn't really one of them. The first is, I think, the corrupting influence of Haman. Hmm. We have noted since his introduction that Mashima is very different than how he was depicted at the beginning of the show. He was this laughable but honorable knight character, right? Now we know... He was integral to the colony drop. He's done some atrocities. Seems totally counter to his earlier character. Here, his plan for dealing with Sato is to have Ilya sneak up and kill him on the battlefield. I don't think that was his plan. Oh, I absolutely do. After Sato leaves the bridge, he tells Ilya he has a plan for Sato. And then we cut, and then on the battlefield, she kills Sato. You don't think that's the plan that he told her in secret before they all... I didn't think so. I'm shocked that you made that leap and you don't think that Mashima is a bad commander. Well, because here's the thing. Commanders, officers within Xeon are always playing a double game. They're always fighting the external enemy and internal rivals. Always. And he's concerned about this old Xeon, old side three captain who very clearly chafes under and refuses to recognize Mashimo's authority. He just seemed so confident that he could handle Sato without murder. Oh, no, I think the intent was to murder him and then to try to use that murder to inspire his soldiers. We've absolutely seen squads inspired by vengeance before in much more effective ways. It didn't work this time. Instead, the death was very demoralizing instead of inspiring to the troops. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad plan. I'm not saying it was like moral or correct. Obviously, it was a horrible thing to do. But I think it was a a relatively well thought out plan that just happened to backfire. And in the long run, maybe it doesn't backfire. Maybe once they've regrouped a little bit, they can get some of that vengeful spirit. He now also has more ability to directly influence that squad. And he has the whole speech to them at the end about 
you're going to be much better treated in Neo Zeon than you were in old Zeon. And as long as you stick with me and we're successful, you're going to have so many promotion opportunities because I am close to Haman. And that's when he does the uh, maniacal laughter. Right. Which I think does go to what you said earlier about the corrupting influence of Haman, the effect of being close to her. And the fact that he is, you know, he's not giving a speech about the honor of their cause. He's not giving a speech about chivalry and their prowess on the battlefield. It's very mercenary. You will get promoted. You'll be treated better frequently means you'll be paid more and fed better. Like, you'll have more perks. And in this way, he parallels Danny over with the uh, 3D Jamru Finn team, who also talks about their goals in terms of promotions and money and impressing the ladies. But this is such a change for Mashima. Oh, this is dark Mashima. This is a Mashima who used to be a romantic <laughs> and is now effectively sort of like bribing his soldiers. Well, it's in the visuals too. Mashima's uniform has changed in a bunch of ways since now he's gotten into visual K or glam rock. But also his overall color palette has changed for the darker. There's a lot of black in his uniform now, whereas... If you think back to the beginning of the show, there's an episode where he wears an all-white suit. His uniform now looks much more like Haman's. We noted early on how out of sync he seemed, right? That his romanticization of Haman and their cause felt extremely naive and out of touch with reality. So perhaps this is a Mashima who better understands the reality of Haman and Neo Zeon. I want to take a moment to talk about those old-timers from Side 3, Sato and his squad, because they're a little bit different from the Xeon remnants that we encountered on Earth. These are not guys who kept up the fight all these years. They give every indication of being people who, at the end of the war, accepted the peace treaty, went on to live peacefully in the Republic of Xeon for 10 years or near enough, and now, as soon as Neo Zeon shows up, they are ready to put the old uniforms back on, get back in the pilot seat, and uh, fight for the old dream of a zombie autocracy. They remind me of like the old Napoleonic dinosaurs who came out of the woodwork when Napoleon returned from Elba. Like so many of the political conflicts in Gundam shows, the conflict between old Zeon and Neo Zeon is never really explained, but I am deeply curious. Let's jump over to the third in our bad captain's triad and talk about Bicha and also his relationship with Judo. I think their relationship is best summed up by when Bicha finally launches and the two of them immediately start arguing, but they're fighting back to back. They have each other's backs. They do trust each other and they will fight for each other, but they are always going to be rivals in a sense. They are always going to be competitive with each other and buttheads, and that's just a natural part of their relationship. Yeah, it's like when they almost have a fist fight on the bridge and it's only Torres interceding that prevents it. And it escalates very quickly. It's a maybe three-line verbal exchange before one of them is like, oh, you want to fight about it? <laughs> Put them up. Yeah, I get the impression they maybe get into a lot of fistfights, the two of them, or scuffles. Bicha in this episode reminded me of nothing so much as Bright in the early episodes of First Gundam, where he doesn't really know yet what his job as the captain is, and often he's just sitting on the bridge yelling at everybody to do their jobs both better and faster. Ah, uh, however... I don't think Bright ever gave orders for the joy of exercising power. And Bicha absolutely does. Mm -hmm, Bicha mm -hmm. is so into this sense of power that this position of nominal authority gives him. And every time he tells somebody what to do or how to do it, you can tell he's getting this little thrill of like, haha, I have the power now. Sure. I mean, there's some delight and joy to be found in exercising power, especially if, like Bicha, you are not accustomed to it. You have never had it before. You have spent your life as the subject of power rather than the wielder. 
But also, I think Bicha is not secure in his position as captain, and why should he be at this stage? Uh, and part of his insistence on giving orders and his thrill at having them obeyed comes from that sense of insecurity. People listening to him is a sign that he actually is the captain, and people ignoring him and doing whatever they please undermines his captainness. That being said, I think this episode does continue to hammer on the same message from the prior one, which is that the role of the captain on the Nail Argama is not really giving orders. Bicha is so much more valuable to them as a mobile suit pilot because everybody on the bridge basically knows what to do. And Bicha ordering them to be faster and better is not helping anyone. The most interesting part of it for me is that nobody is saying he can't be captain. Nobody is saying let's not have a captain at all. It's just about how he is being the captain. And the sense that not only is it bound to be different because of their circumstances, but that it has to be different. That they need him to be a particular kind of captain. And that he can still have that position, but he needs to kind of conform to the needs of the ship. And when they get that message from Bright, and Beach is like, ah, this looks like a job for a captain. He's absolutely right. Reading letters from command is a job for the captain, and everyone is happy to let him do it. And he seems a bit envious, a bit concerned, a little bit like he feels Judo is stepping on his toes when Judo is uh, the one sort of responding to Bright's inspirational message with, yeah, let's do it, and everybody's rallying around Judo. But there's no reason your head pilot or your, your ace pilot can't be the one rallying everybody's morale. That doesn't have to be the captain's job, and it doesn't undermine the captain if someone else is also doing that. Peach is just jealous. He wants to be the cool one who says the cool things and makes everybody go, yeah! And whomst among us has not felt that jealousy? I was gratified by how much Bright's letter to them echoed some of what we talked about last week. That was gratifying. I felt pretty good about that. Yeah. Thank you, Bright. You're ready to direct yourselves, make decisions for yourselves, take initiative, fight for yourselves. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's good stuff. Also amused by Mondo being like, how can they threaten us? We're not soldiers. And it's like, well, if you're not soldiers, you stole that ship. <laughs> to which Mondo would say, yes. Yes, we did. Then what exactly is the problem with them treating you like criminals? They're not a, an especially logical bunch, but... Can we talk about mobile suits a little bit? Sure. Because there's three mobile suits, two of which appear for the first time in this episode, and one that appeared last episode, but we didn't really talk about it. Uh, those would be the Jamru Fins, which are actually mobile armors, the Regelgu, which is the Gelgu-like mobile suit that Ilya is piloting, and the new team of, I swear they're not Rick Diaz's, but Sturm Diaz's, that Sato and his team are all piloting. You'll see the Sturm Diaz name written Schutzroom uh, sometimes, which comes from the Japanese way of writing it, but it's pretty well established that it comes from the German word Sturm. I really like, I like all of these actually, but I really like the Jamru Fins. I like the Jamrufin as well, especially the head for some reason. It's got a weird head shape. I like it. I like the transformed um, like fighter mode because it makes me think of something out of Star Wars. I think during the episode I asked Tom if they were vaguely X-Wing shaped. <laughs> and they are. I think they more closely resemble some other Star Wars fighters that hadn't been invented when the Jamrufin was drawn. Um, and the Jamrufin is actually, when we first see it in this episode, it's combined with a, a booster mode, and the booster looks a whole lot like a Y-Wing from Star Wars, but when they combine, it looks more like an X-Wing. Anyway, uh, but when they transform, and that weird creepy head thing comes out uh, that we both love so much, um, they really reminded me of Skeksis from the Dark Crystal. Mm, like the tiny head on a huge body. <laughs> and the very like avian head and the specific way the body is kind of like crouched over um, and the way the arms and the legs are arranged. Yeah, I got a, a strong like Skeksis or humanoid vulture kind of look from them. 
Uh, also, where's the fin bit come in? Is that part of the name? I feel like they leave it out a lot when they're talking about them. It is part of the name. I've seen in some of the uh, supplementary stuff that the Jamru fin was supposedly developed from the big Zam. Uh, so maybe the Zam and Jam parts are related and then fin is like a modifier the way big is. I'm not sure. But they're real cool. I like them a lot. I am, however, really curious because we've got this team of pilots, the 3D Jamru team, <laughs> Dell, Dune, and Danny. They even, they call them 3D, yep. right? Um, why the heck are they not piloting Drysense? A mobile suit that starts with a D means three. But Tom, they needed to introduce a new mobile suit for the money. Uh, and yet they don't, ugh. that makes me so mad <laughs> because there's no modern model of the Jamru fin. But was there's there? A very, yes, there is an old one. Yeah. But I, I want to give them money <laughs> and they won't let me. Well, maybe they need to bring back the Jamru fin and then there'll be a new mobile suit release. I think we can do better than Del Dune and Danny though. We need a better trio of pilots. Uh, the Sturmdias is so like the Rikdias that there's almost nothing to say about it, except it's funny that it's gone from being an Ayug suit to a Neo-Zeon suit. Is it a Neo-Zeon design based off of the original, or is it like <laughs> Anaheim Electronics? slight modification to get around whatever contractual obligations they have not to sell the design to Neozeon, uh, selling the design to Neozeon. That latter one is way funnier. You can just <laughs> imagine the Anaheim Electronics uh, executives being like, no, this is not the same mobile suit. Look, the wing binders are a different shape. And then the Regelgu, which again, I really like mostly because I like the Gelgug and it's basically the same thing, but with way bigger shoulders. And that is really the essence of how you update a design from the late 70s for the 80s. Just give it big old shoulder pads. It's also fun to say. Regalgu. I'll regale you with my pronunciation of the Regalgu. At first, I really thought that it was supposed to be Regalgug, and you were leaving off the last syllable for some reason. No, it was in fact Tomino who left off the final syllable for some reason. Sasuga Tomino. <laughs> Re here is short for refined. So it's the refined Gelgug or the Regelgu. I like the way they depict it in the prior episode. I meant to mention this, but neglected to, because it's moving around so fast that often all we see of it is just those big trapezoidal shoulders moving around. It's like being attacked by geometry. It's a great turn of phrase, attacked by geometry. And now Nina's research on blood type. In one of our recent patron bonus episodes, which will get a public release eventually, uh, we read aloud from an interview with Suzuki Yumiko that we had professionally translated. As one of the lead writers for Zeta Gundam and Gundam Double Zeta, we talk about Suzuki a lot, but have found very little written about her, so this was an exciting find. The interview is all about her work on Zeta Gundam, and in it, Suzuki makes an offhand comment that she wrote Camille Bidan as a B-type character. What did she mean by that? It's quite different from what people in the United States mean when they say Type A or Type B. In the US, the Type A personality description dates from the 1950s, when two cardiologists theorized that people with certain characteristics namely those who were competitive, highly organized, anxious, ambitious, impatient, were more likely to develop coronary heart disease, and type B people being those who were not those things. As an aside, they did research their theory, but the research was largely discounted when it was found to be funded by the tobacco industry. Uh, even so, the personality description is considered valuable, and it was a very early and even foundational example of health psychology, the study of how an individual's mental state affects their physical health. 
Suzuki, however, is referring to blood type. In Japan and in some other countries in the region, the different blood types, A, B, AB, and O, are associated with particular personality traits, similar to zodiac signs in the United States. To the point where some people make dating decisions based on it, employers might take it into account in hiring and group assignment decisions, and there's even a wasego word for blood type-based harassment or prejudice, budahara, for blood harassment. Wikipedia pages and other bios of famous people often list their blood type, and some games and TV shows, including Gundam Double Zeta, give their characters blood types in the setting materials or in other bonus content. Blood type, and how to determine it from blood samples, was discovered in 1909 by Austrian scientist Karl Landsteiner, who won the Nobel Prize for his work. By the 1920s, race scientists and eugenicists were already using blood typing to further their own theories and goals, and Japan's interest in blood type and personality came out of this period. According to one source, Nazi scientists used the fact that type A blood is more common in European populations and that type B is more common in Asia, and that type B blood is typical in a number of animal populations to assert that this proved Asians were less evolved, closer to animals, and generally inferior to Europeans. Unsurprisingly, some of the Japanese interest in studying blood type and its possible connection to human character and performance came out of a desire to disprove this kind of garbage. On the other hand, the Japanese army also wanted to use this information to breed super soldiers and to analyze and explain why certain colonized populations were more defiant than others. Furukawa Takeji, a professor at Tokyo Women's Teachers School, is credited by several sources as the first Japanese person to study blood type in relation to personality. He published The Study of Temperament Through Blood Type in the scholarly journal Psychological Research in 1927. Based on a sample size of only 11 people, all of whom were members of his family and none of whom had type AB blood. And in the 1930s, he studied the blood type distribution in the native populations of Hokkaido and Taiwan, looking for a biological explanation for Taiwan's tenacious resistance to Japanese occupation. The Ainu population was considered more submissive. Furukawa found that a high percentage of the native Taiwanese population, 41.2%, had type O blood, which he considered proof of them being genetically predisposed toward rebelliousness. For comparison, he found that only 23.8% of the Ainu population had type O blood. And since we're talking about race science and eugenics, his proposed solution was to use intermarriage between Japanese settlers and native Taiwanese people to decrease the proportion of Taiwan's population with type O blood. Interest in the relationship between blood type and personality died down before World War II, and had a resurgence when journalist Nomi Masahiko's book, Understanding Affinity by Blood Type, became a bestseller in 1971. Nomi died in 1981, but his son, Nomi Toshitaka, took up the reins, continuing to write books on the subject and even founding the Human Science ABO Center in 2004. Peak popularity of the theory seems to have been in the mid-1980s, around the time Zeta and Double Zeta were released. Some studies have been done in an attempt to test whether there's anything to this, and most find no statistically significant relationship between personality and blood type. In those studies that did find a connection, it's unclear whether the test subject's knowledge of blood type personality theory affected the results. Was it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Was it confirmation bias? With that history established, what are the actual types? And more importantly, what are the blood types of some Gundam characters? People with type O blood are said to be active, competitive, and capable of great perseverance as long as they're pursuing a clear goal. They're flexible and resilient, able to roll with the punches. Strong-willed, optimistic, loyal, and with great leadership ability, they can also be careless about little things, insensitive, aggressive, and rude. Arrogance and vanity mask insecurity. Rue and Mondo both have type O blood. That sounds like Rue. Insensitive, aggressive, but very capable and active. <laughs> And it reveals some surprising things about the as-yet-poorly-understood Mondo. Perhaps he is not merely Beach's lackey. Perhaps there is a spark of rebelliousness that lives in his blood. 
There's certainly plenty of flexibility and resilience, though I probably would say that about all of the Shangri-La kids. He also seems to have a particular loyalty to Bicha, so there is that. People with type A blood are described as organized, sensitive, and strongly interested in promoting harmony, generally tactful and conscientious. They're also diligent and reliable, however they can be stubborn, anxious, overly perfectionistic or fastidious, and easily stressed. In dealing with others, they can seem reserved, even wary. One source described A-types as hiding their feelings, being very controlled on the outside with a lot of intense emotion on the inside. Bicha and Ino have type A blood. Ino I can completely see, but Bicha? Well, maybe this reveals a few things about Bicha's personality and the roots of some of his behavior in this episode. Maybe it's not just that he likes ordering people around, but he has a desire to control everything around him. And trying to make sure that everything goes just so. And for all that he plays at being nonchalant, he does seem rather an anxious person. A bit high-strung, yeah. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> People with type B blood are thought of as selfish, freewheeling, uncooperative, and irresponsible, but highly creative. They are cheerful and outgoing, curious, passionate, and unconventional. The flip side being that they are unpredictable, even wild, and lose interest in things quickly. This blood type is often talked about as the bad one. People focus on the negative traits over the positive ones, and it is sometimes the target of teasing or bullying behavior or other social rejection. L and Judo are both type B blood people, although Judo was originally conceived of as AB instead. I can see describing both of them as freewheeling, independent-minded, creative, and a little unpredictable. I was just pointing out an episode or two ago how cheerful Elle is. And back on Shangri-La, she often worked independently from the rest of the group. When she was spying on the Neo-Zeon forces, or when they all decided to go to school and she did her own thing. Yeah, I can definitely see uh, both Elle and Judo falling into this category. Finally, we have people with type AB blood, who are said to combine many of the characteristics present in type A and type B, and are therefore seen as dual-natured, complicated, and eccentric. Simultaneously, two-faced and trustworthy, sociable and shy. They are also mysterious and aloof, but charming. Self-centered and forgetful, impatient, proud, but also artistic, composed, and diplomatic. This is the rarest of the blood types in Japan, and in many other places. Camille, Lena, and Char have type AB blood. I absolutely see it with Char. <laughs> and elsewhere in the interview that Nina was talking about at the beginning of this segment, Suzuki did make the point that Camille and Char were simply too similar to each other. As for Lena, though, that one's a little trickier, but I can totally see it because while Lena was by force of circumstances and gender and the fact that she was Judo's little sister required to be the more responsible down-to-earth one and she's the one who was always telling him to lead a normal life and stop doing such reckless dangerous things she herself had a tendency to get into the same kind of mishaps and scrapes and while Judah wanted her to go to a good school and be part of regular society, she never really seemed to want that. She wanted to hang out with him and lead that same kind of life. And maybe those two siblings were always more similar than it first appeared. The description made me immediately think of how adept she was at handling the situation when they escaped to Dakar, how easy it was for her to lie and to be convincing, uh, and to be composed and diplomatic in a tense, dangerous situation, that she has those A-type traits of wanting to promote harmony in the group and being sort of dependable, but she can also be very creative. She can be unconventional, that Lena is complicated and difficult to make out. This kind of research piece always reminds me of a project I had in high school English, where we split into groups and had to research and present on Shakespeare, but more specifically on various 
uh, at the time, scientific or superstitious topics that crop up in the text. Things like astrology, the humors, symbolism and medicinal uses of plants. Knowledge that would have been commonplace in a contemporary audience and that adds additional detail and meaning. These blood type-based personalities are really archetypes. And although they aren't mentioned explicitly in the show, knowing that at least one of the writers used these archetypes to inform how she wrote the characters gives us some insight into both the process and the characters themselves. Next time on episode 3.37, what's the plan here? We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 39, and some sort of trap. Lip balm. You mean lip balm, right? No, balm. <laughs> Cunning disguises. We're not praising you. Stop feeling appreciated. Custom aprons. An aura specialist. So you've got no plan. A plant. And the women demand more equal distribution of domestic labor. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Lena is still dead. We just saw the new and improved clone, Lena 2. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's wrong Gundam opinion comes from Sergeant Soultaker. Thanks, Sergeant Soultaker. But you really ought to know that she's a body double. And thank you for listening. start when the train is gone. <laughs> I shall already start when that car engine outside is gone. Um, okay, so I am going to take a quick break because I have to go buy some extremely limited gun plug, Ah, <laughs> which is going to go live at 9pm. I, I see. Um, okay. hear it. God, it's like it's not getting any closer or farther away. When the Levian Rose is opening fire and they're firing like through their own mobile suit formation and they get <laughs> yelled at to not do that. Yep. No, this is even later. Um, It's a subtle difference, but I'm pretty sure they're wearing the old Xeon uniforms, not the Neo-Xeon ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, rem it reminded me of that Bojack Horseman uh, bit about how there's just a lot of male energy in this room. This is a tortured metaphor, but I'm going to say it anyway. Oh, gosh.
Pedumpum. They're contractually obligated to be naked. I can see both of them. I can see describing both of them as freewheeling. I can see both. I think my first explosions were better, but that's fine. I just, I love the explosions. I wasn't expecting them. Oh, we talked about it. I was very excited to do it. <laughs> it's the funniest part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>